Good morning, Hoochie Mama Sarah Hepler. Oh my God. Good morning, uh, <laughs> Foxy Vixen Nancy Rommelman. Well, you do know. Why, I- why was I a Hoochie Mama? I don't know. It was the phrase, Sarah. I was You're out. Such a goofy phrase. I well, I was out late last night. I was out back. Where was I? I was back at the uh, Comedy Cellar Olive Tree, watching that fantastic band that we saw last time with uh, with Coleman Hughes. Remember, we went. To the of course, I remember. It was amazing. But you never told our fans about it. You never told our listeners. So every Monday night uh, at the Comedy Cellar, um, there's upstairs at the Comedy Cellar. I think it's called the Olive Tree. It there's there's music, there's stuff, there's food, and we kind of convene there every Monday night that we can because at nine o'clock the best band in the world is playing. And there's just a bunch of people in this band, including our good friend Coleman Hughes. And um, I brought my Who daughter. plays trombone? Trumpet? Trombone? Trumpet. I don't know. What do I want Why are we so stupid? Because I am stupid. I, I know. I, that's I've the never, truth. Now. I never, ever not copped to being stupid um, when it comes to, like, <laughs> details. Like, two blogs, I don't know, something. Um, but, but if you don't know, Coleman, you know, Coleman Hughes is um, a dynamic and fascinating uh, thinker who has his own podcast called Conversations with Coleman. Um uh, a graduate, a recent graduate, he's so young, of uh, Columbia University. But he w- also attended Juilliard, where he, um, you know, played some kind of instrument that comes out of your mouth. It's either a trombone or a trumpet. But I think he also didn't stay for that long. I will also say he's a apparently a very or was a like a ranked or just a very, very avid test player. And I will tell you, first of all, I adore Coleman and I can think I can kind of say it now. He was on the trip in Israel uh, with us. And so I got to hang out with him a lot. And actually, I'm going to post a little short, little uh, cute, uh, like four second video uh, in our in our show notes. And I think you can see him. Um, but he is uh, just a brilliant guy, a sweet, sweet guy. And um, so he's in the band. And we were there last night with Taba and Michael Moynihan and a friend of his from Vice. And it was wonderful, as usual. So um, why, why did I start saying this? Something about being you oh, called me tired. because this tired. is the origin story okay. of why you called me Hoochie know. Mama. I don't know. Which is such a strange is phrase. Is it derogatory? I don't know. What yeah, it? it's totally derogatory. I don't mean that. I don't mean it. I mean it. You're so wonderful and squeezable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You (laughs) negged and microaggressed me and you were like, oh, I thought it was a compliment. You are like, uh, yeah, I'm going to file a complaint here. She called me Hoochie Mama on a podcast. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it, well, I don't know. Maybe it was originally meant to be uh, complimentary, but I think it definitely took on a derogatory term. Um, okay, before we go any further, because I have one more thing I want to say about what you called me, I want to tell our listeners what we're going to be talking about today because somebody told us to do that. And I actually think it's a good idea. We are going to be talking about Fame, the movie, which came out in 1980 and meant a lot to both Sarah and me. And because Irene Cara, who started it, she, she died this week. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk a little bit about 
You know Diaz, who was accused of sexual harassment and had his life derailed. We found out a little more about that yesterday uh, on Ben uh, Smith's news site, Semaphore. And then, of course, we had the the hall monitor of, of Me Too chiming in on Twitter. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then on our bonus, our you know, we have our little 30 minutes bonus now, guys. So you need to subscribe. You need to pay subscribe to get that. We're going to be talking about a new TV show, which Sarah Heppel and I disagree on. So look forward to that. We will have some uh, some interesting stuff to say about Fleischman is in trouble. But before we get to anything, I want to say you called me a vixen. I used to have a company called Beyond the Office of the Super Vixens. And it was in a, I think we paid $75 a month for a a one tiny room in an earthquake condemned birth uh, building over the 101 freeway in Hollywood. And from that, from that, office. We, my, my sister-in-law and I, I, I didn't know her brother yet, but I met her brother and married him. Um, we turned out probably 300 articles amongst, between us and also wrote a best-selling book called The Real Real World. So that was a good $75 a month spent. I have two comments. Yes, One yes. is a request. Yes. Can you talk 10% slower? Yes, I can. <laughs> You're going so fast. Okay. I'm drinking a Diet Coke. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just not there yet. Okay. Okay. That's my first request. My second okay. request. Oh, oh. And then I have a comment. So this is 1B. Okay. Uh, beyond the Valley of the Super Vixens. Beyond the, beyond the Office of the Super Vixens. Oh, okay. There were two puns in there. Beyond the Office of the Super Vixens is really great. It's, of course, a play on Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, one of the classic sort of cult camp films written by Roger Ebert. Uh, oh, wow. I didn't yes, know Roger Ebert's early screenplay. Well, I didn't name... I, it was named by a former boyfriend of mine who used to... He just... I don't know. He just pulled it out and we're like, oh, that's good. So anyway, it was fun. Now I'm going to tell you the, what it means to be a hoochie mama. Oh, God, you looked it up. The terms hoochie and hoochie mama are nouns, which are used to represent a very promiscuous... Let me try this again. Are used to represent a very promiscuous woman who gets around and has multiple partners. I so actually, you nailed it. I was going to say, and the problem is... Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I appreciate. I feel seen. Now everybody knows. Um, okay. Good morning, Sarah Hepla. It has been a week of weeks for me. Uh, I think that's a play on the, the day of days, something biblical, which I haven't actually read. I told you that was in my, my hot box last week. I haven't even read it yet, but it's a beautiful book. Um, yeah, it's been a week. How was your, uh, how was your Thanksgiving? Oh, it was great. Uh, I spent it with my little family, my little nuclear family. You know, I have a weird, tight, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me start everything over again. Yeah. Just, Hoochie, that, after the Hoochie like, Mama thing, it's yeah. like you don't well, start good. stories like this, especially about your family. Um, <laughs> my mom and dad are still married. They're still alive. They're cute as hell. Um, and I have another brother, I mean, have a brother who, like me, is not married without kids. So we're sort of like a failure as a family in the sense that the, tr the family tree never branched. But we're a great success as a family in the sense that we really like each other. And we took a family trip to Wimberley, which is a, a town in the hill country, Austin, like about 30 minutes outside of Austin. Really cool, fun. We got an Airbnb. We hung out. We watched movies. We played a game. I brought this fun stupid game i buy stupid games i love this one was called girls night in and um like, and with the hoochie mama 
Yeah, I know. Well, it's like this goofy thing that was made in the aughts. Um, like if you're hanging out with your girlfriends okay. and, um, you know, it, it had this like spinner. And so like one option was, you know, act out a scene from a movie or truth or dare or instead of marry, fuck or kill, they had kiss one night stand or marry. Oh, so anyway, one of the one of the spinners landed on fake an orgasm, and we just decided uh-huh. as a family nobody was going to do that. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say we all did it at no. um, one. No, because my dad. No, it's, just it's no. Not, he's eighty two years know. old. He's a Finnish engineer. He's like the most. No, this is not going to happen. Nobody, like nobody, like as a family, we've decided that nobody will fake an orgasm in front of everyone else. Anyway, my parents were such good sports. Um, we played this. We laughed so hard. It was really fun. My parents are just so sweet. And I, I, you know, I am very, very lucky. My parents are still healthy at the age of 78 and 82. And we just all get along. Of course, you know, we are also a self-actualizing personal tragedy in the sense that both my brother and I pursued such, such avenues of like personal fulfillment that we never got married and never had kids. However, we all get along. Uh, How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was small. It was with my mom. I went upstate and then um, Matt Welch and his two daughters, uh, seven and 14, came up. And the 14-year-old, as soon as she got there, I was like, hey, you want to do something? She's like, what? I was like, learn to drive. She's like, what? What? I I took her driving around and my my daughter's beater car is up there. I mean, it's a true beater with a cracked windshield and it's not registered. Please don't call the police on us. And uh, we, but I took her around and it was fun. I mean, you know, she'd never done it. She grew up in the city, right? When would she have driven? So that was fun. And then I let the seven-year-old drive with me on my lap. So that was fun. We had a good meal. I always see that in movies, but I didn't think it still happened. Someone's got to teach you how to drive, right? I was not sitting on anyone's lap at the age. Well, it was, learning it was, to drive. It was, I was I was like a proper Gen Xer. I was drinking beer from the fridge. Yeah. Well. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was fun. We I made some good pies. The dinner was really good. Uh, in terms of parents, my mom is eighty five, and I will say, you know, without getting into too much personal business, there's there's memory stuff, and this is a challenge. Um, but you know, it's our challenge to to take care of. So we're doing our best with that. And with that, speaking of memories. Lighting the corner of my mind. Nancy. Uh, Yes. Yes. Look at me and tell me what you see. You ain't seen the best of me yet. Give me time. I'll make you forget the rest. Yes, you will, Sarah Heppler. And I have to say, when you texted me, well, first of all, you put your tweet up about Kara, and I didn't, I didn't know that she you didn't died. know that Irene Kara, star of the 1980 Zeitgeist film Fame, and the singer of the famous theme song to Flashdance, had died. I didn't know that. I will say, I'm going to let you, you have more information on this, but I will just say, since you were, you were like six years old or something when it came out, I was in high school. So when it came out, I was in New York. I was in high school in New York. I know that school. I know people that went to that school. I, at that time was in the very, very thick of my absolutely dreaming, needing like a, like a person needs to drink water to be famous. And I was actually doing a lot of acting at that point, like at, um, but at the high school I was at, but that movie was just straight into my veins. And I went and saw it five times, like five times 
in the year that it came out. In the out. movie theater. So yeah. now these yeah. days, when you go, when you say like, oh, uh, like my my kids watch Frozen 500 times, it's like no big deal. You just had it on the background. Right. Back in the day, you had to walk a mile in the snow to get a second ticket to a movie. You had to pay or, you know, movie theater hop, which I often did. But like, if you went and saw a movie multiple times, which I also did with a few movies, including Annie the Musical, you, it showed real dedication. It's just not the same. It's just not the same to see a movie over and over again now. It's just no big deal. No, but it was, I mean, then it meant something. And you went to a movie five times. Yeah. I, I had to go. It was one of these things it's it's hard for me to overemphasize the sweet spot of what fame was. Yes. It just it just was. New York City at that time, that age, these these yearnings, these tragedies, these feelings of failure, these it was ever at the music. And I will say, and then I'm gonna let you run with this because you you told me you you know a lot about the vaccine. I watched the movie again a couple of nights ago. I hadn't seen it since I was a teenager. I watched this movie and this movie Holds up. Okay. There Holds are, up. You see other movies from 1980. You're like, oh, I remember I was on a story when I was writing my book to the bridge and I went out to Eastern Oregon. It was a stand in this old, like Western kind of hotel. And they had videotapes that you could bring up to your room and put in the VCR. Okay. This was in like, this was only 10 years ago, guys. And I said, well, let me look at Bonfire of the Vanities. I remember liking that movie. Oh my God. No, no, that's a terrible what? movie. Oh, but it was so fake, like everything, like the glasses on Bruce Willis. It looked like a oh, cartoon. Yeah. Fame. That was a terrible movie at the time. Well, whatever. Okay, whatever. The book fame, is fame amazing. Holds up, and I teared up twice with the big, the big numbers. The number, the one in the street with the the taxis, and the one when they're just. I, I, it was, it was, it was. It absolutely holds up, and I think it would be. I think, and this would be interesting, and I know our friend Megan Down asked a question about this on Twitter. Like, I wonder what, like, you know, young people seeing this movie would see. I'm going to tell you, I think that anybody that's even has a foot to desire this world, or maybe even not, just to watch it, it moves you. It, it just is moving because it's just incredibly dynamic. The songs, and and then before I let, uh, just one more thing to say before I let you run with this, Kara was 19 or 20 when she made this. Mm-hmm. And she is absolutely incandescent. Like I could get choked up thinking about the incandescence and strength of this of this performer. She was incredible and deserves every accolade that she's going to get just in general and from you right now, Sarah Hepler. So go. So the reason that I became interested in this, so Irene Cara died at the age of 63 um, which is a little bit unusually young. She was living in Florida, I believe. And we don't have the reason for her death yet. No. But it sparked in me a, two, a sort of two-pronged thought. One thought was, wait, what happened to her? Because she really owned the early 80s. Yeah. With Fame coming out in 1980, followed by Flashdance, What a Feeling coming out in 83, and then it's like she disappears. So what happened? So I wanted to know that. The other thing I wanted to look at is I really believe that fame is an a foundational movie in the sort of late 20th century. Everybody's going to become a star. Everyone's famous for 15 minutes. I realize it's an Andrew, Andy Warhol thing. 
But if you look at the growth of things like even American Idol, uh, something like the Step Up franchise, which was also based on, was, was sort of influenced by fame, or just TikTok. I think you can find a lot of the roots here in a, in a movie like Fame. And I wanted to see if people had written about this sort of psychological influence that it had on a generation. And I, I didn't find a lot of writing about it, but I want to tell you a little bit about it, where, where the movie came from uh, and things that I didn't know. Because like you, okay, so this movie came out when I was six years old and I was not allowed to see an R-rated movie at that time. So I only had the soundtrack. So I had the music. And so then I sort of wrote the story around it. Oh, Sarah. So when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, God, this is really depressing because the soundtrack is incredibly jubilant and wonderful. And it, I mean, it has some, some, some sad songs, but I had no idea what was coming for me in terms of the darkness of this film. Now, I was familiar with the 1982 television show, which, which came out when I was eight and was a much sunnier version of this. Sure. It was a, like a, 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 like it was a sanitized version of, of this story. Okay. So I didn't really remember the movie. And like you, I think it, I think it holds up. And I want to tell you a little bit about the backstory, where this, where this movie came from. Okay, so you remember a chorus line, right? Absolutely. Okay, so a chorus line, uh, which I believe comes out in 1976, the producer, a producer named David De Silva, is watching that. And there's a song in that move, in that, uh, I'm sorry, Broadway musical called Nothing. Do you remember that? Sung by Diana Morales. I don't. I feel nothing. Um, no. It's okay. about an acting class at the High School of the Performing Arts. Okay. So when she tells that story, the producer in the audience is like, oh, I didn't know there was a high school for performing arts. That would be really interesting to do a show, a movie that was just based on those characters. I mean, he's basically ripping off a chorus line. Instead of trying out for a chorus line in a musical, they're trying out for this high school, the performing arts. He's doing a prequel. Yeah, he's basically doing the prequel. Yeah. Um, and so he brings on a screenwriter and they develop a movie that is originally called Hot Lunch. Ooh, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's terrible. Do you I really like think it. it's good? I like it. <laughs> and of course, there's a there's a famous scene in fame where they sing a song called hot lunch in the cafeteria they break into song and it is probably one of the the songs that most thoroughly confused me about what the experience of being at a performing arts high school would look like i also may i just ask you like watching that scene again how much claustrophobia did you get i, I was like oh yeah i'm like i can't i i, can't, I gotta get out of here i gotta so yeah, no, cool. when one of the characters leaves and goes and eats in the hall, I'm like, yeah, I got to. Like, God. people are like pirouetting in your face. It's yeah, just yeah, like yeah. so much, so much drama. Um, yeah, I just like I saw that and I, I remember seeing that as a kid and being like, I could never go to a 
high school performing arts. <gasps> really? Oh, see, oh my God. The opposite. The opposite. I was like, this is where I should be. No, because I was so shy. Oh, okay. And I really longed to be on stage and and be a performer, but my shyness was so crippling. And I especially, I really liked the idea of people giving me lines. That was how I overcame my shyness was I can memorize your lines and say them. But the idea that I would go on stage and like improvise a song about the woman at the lunch counter was like my personal hell. Yeah. I was always terrible at improv, actually. Like when I would do theater stuff, bad, 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 bad. Not good at it. So, so David De Silva hires a screenwriter named Christopher Gore, and he writes a movie called Hot Lunch. And they bring on the director, Alan Parker. Alan Parker is a British director who had just filmed a movie called Midnight Express. Oh, man. That. Yeah. Wow. It's a dark one. That's, you know, that movie, nobody really talks about that. But man, when that, I also saw that in the theater as a teenager. And that was like, what? It's like, don't ever smuggle hash. Yeah. He's smuggling hash and he ends up in a Turkish prison. And it's like. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the yeah. darkest film. Yeah, we'll put a we'll put a link to the uh, to the trailer. So this is a really interesting choice for the movie, right? I mean, this guy has a much more like gritty lens on which he views life, and in fact, Alan Parker takes this movie, which is meant as a sort of inspirational, fun, joyful tale about kids that want to make it, and he basically rewrites it to make a make a much darker film. And I think, you know, you can argue that maybe a few of the characters are a little bit of a caricature of the time, but actually a truer film, a much truer film, right? It is a way, like, I really like the honesty of this film. One of the fascinating things about this movie is that I think it is truly, I think you could argue that it's a cautionary tale for pursuing a life in the arts. And yet it becomes the blueprint for a generation of people to pursue a life in the arts, which is fascinating um, because I think most people just remember the theme song, you know, I'm going to live forever. And that's what, that, that becomes, that becomes the, the takeaway from this movie, which is really about how difficult and demeaning and almost like soul warping and harrowing and harrowing. Har- yeah. 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 So, okay. So Parker comes on and he changes it, right? But he also, at that around that time, sees a movie advertised in Times Square, which of course was like the center of porn films at the time, and it is called Hot Lunch. Because Hot Lunch is apparently slang for oral sex. Oh, wow. Whoa, I didn't know that. Did you Yeah, know? that's why you intuitively responded to it. I was like, yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Wow. I, ooh, I'm going to use that. I'm going to keep that. So they come up with a bunch of titles. Do you want me to, to share some of them with you? Sure. These were the alternate titles they had. Razzle Dazzle. Oh, boy. Bad, bad, bad. Neon Dreams. Mm, boring. Break a Leg. Mm, terrible. Tinsel and Glitter. Mm. Reach for the Sky. None of those. Okay, they all suck, yeah. which is what Alan Parker says. And he's like, no, none of these. So he reaches out to David Bowie, who had put out a song in 1975 called Fame. Called Fame. And he uses Fame as the title. And then they 
create the song. But for much of the, the, while they were filming the movie, they didn't actually have the title. So when they're dancing in the street, one of the iconic scenes that you remember, which is that, uh, they start playing a song, like one of the kids has been secretly making music with the Irene character character whose name is Coco and his dad is a cab driver. I love that cab driver oh, character, by the way. He's fabulous. He's so he's fabulous. fabulous. Yeah. And he decides that like he wants people to know his son's music. So he starts playing it in the cab and in a sort of like hilariously only happens in the movies scene, all the kids filter down into the street and start dancing and dancing on the cars I found that like a hostile act. Like I actually, I know it's supposed to be jubilant, but I was like, oh my God. Again, much like the hot lunch scene, I was like, if I were caught in Times Square and a bunch of friggin' high schoolers started uh, like grinding on top of my car. It's so hot. Oh my God. <laughs> but the point of my telling this story is that in real life, they were dancing to the song Hot Stuff. By Donna Summer. Right. Uh, can, may I just, speaking of hot stuff, um, <clears throat> I'd sort of forgotten about that opening dance scene with Leroy. <gasps> oh my God. Oh my God. I, I, I love oh my the God. character of Leroy Johnson. I'd like to, uh, before we get, we, we're going to have a lot of Leroy love here, but I would just like to say I was like 16. And I was hanging out with boys that looked like Leroy, like that had this sort of like body and it was New York and they didn't have their shirts on and they had like short shorts and their boom boxes. And I was like, that's it right there. He That opening dance scene, we will definitely put a clip in the show notes is it's it's unbelievable. It's are you and you're talking about the part where like like there's a moment where he sort of like rubs on his ass yeah. and then someone turns to Debbie Allen who's playing um a, a young dance teacher and they say what do you call that and she goes wicked. Yeah. No, it wasn't even that much much because that's like almost 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 gilding the but, lily. It's just the whole dude, thing. He dude. gets in there. It's like this is absolutely undeniable. It's just crazy, crazy, crazy hot. And you know what? I'm not a big, like, I don't go see dance. Like it's not, no, but man, you see these people dancing and you're just like, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Motherfucking yes to this right every once in a while i'm reminded of the sort of wordless splendor of watching somebody in motion in a way that seems like almost this is going to sound so over the top but like in tune with the universe or something like that no, but it is. and it is so undeniable that's exactly the right word and so leroy johnson who plays um one of the I'm sorry. Leroy Johnson is one of the characters from fame. He's one of the most memorable. He is a kid from the ghetto who kind of accidentally gets into this school and turns out to be illiterate. Um, and part of the story is about his struggle. Um, I was suddenly like, wait a minute. I've never even learned that actor's name and what happened to him. I so before we get to what happened to Irene Cara, can I tell you what happened to Gene Anthony Ray? Yes, I did look that up. Um, but go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. 
It's a sad story. Well, I don't, I didn't, we, I only saw that he had died a number of like in 2005 or something like that when he was. 2003, I think he's, he was 41 years old. In 2001, you are exactly correct. He died from a stroke and complications from AIDS. You know, I have to tell you something. Okay. This is, this is going back to that time. So mid eighties, I'm in New York city. I've just gotten out of college. I'm catering for a catering company. And we'd of course heard about this, you know, it was this weird thing. Nobody knew it was like called the gay cancer. They didn't even really know that. And I worked for a catering company and there were, it was like, we did a lot of fancy, fancy parties, like at the governor's mansion and this kind of stuff. And there was a squadron of a hundred waiters. Mostly you did had two or three, but there were lots and they were all young gay men. There was one straight guy um, that I recall, but they were like, most of them were in theater. They were beautiful. They were young. They were dynamic. They were very, very lovely. Like I I just, I loved these guys. They were so, they were all like my age, maybe just a little older, early twenties, mid twenties. And they just started dying. They just started like all of a sudden this person wasn't here. And then this person wasn't here. And the head of the waiters, he just was becoming so crestfallen. And then he got HIV and he died. I mean, I wasn't there for when he died, but I know that he did later. And when I, when I saw, when I saw Jean Anthony Ray dancing, I said to myself, I really, really hope that this person did not get AIDS and die. And the reason I said that is only because it was the era and who he was. I, I don't know if he was gay or not, but uh, I'll I'll talk about that a little bit. So I'm I'm sorry to hear that, but I but also not but also not surprised. When I watched the movie, one of the things that struck me was, oh wow, if this character were being portrayed now, that character would be gay. And here in 1980, he's portrayed as a ladies' man. Right. And everybody's in love with him. And that is one cultural difference between now and 1980. Now, fame does have an openly gay character, a very sympathetic openly gay yes, character. And it was awesome. revolutionary for that time. That was an unusual thing to have. Yeah. You know, the movie Philadelphia is in the late 80s. Yes. Um, so, and this is, this is right as that, uh, the HIV and AIDS crisis is, is starting to crest. I mean, I don't think that happens until 84. But anyway, Gene Anthony Ray, um, he had a background that was pretty similar to Leroy Johnson. He had okay. been at the high school of performing arts and he was kicked out in his first year for uh, like, act. I, I mean, like, I don't, I don't know exactly what he did, but it, it was, you know, he was mouthing off and he was acting up. Okay. He was very close to his mother, Jean, um, but she was a drug dealer. In fact, she was eventually put in prison uh, for being part of a drug ring. Uh, she was put behind bars for 15 years. She sold cocaine and heroin, including on the set of the the movie Fame. <gasps> oh, Wow. That's, that's gotta be hard for him. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So he goes on, he's one of the, the actors that also takes the role in the television show. Um, you know, Irene Cara had decided to turn down the television show role of Coco because she was like, I'm going to do pursue a movie career that never really happened. But 
uh, along with Debbie Allen and uh, Lee Carrere, the guy who plays Bruno Martelli. Anyway, uh-huh. there's, a, there's a few people that re- uh, reprise their role. Gene Anthony Ray is one of them. <clears throat> he was doing that that TV show, but he was starting to become a real partier. And, uh, you know, he started missing, he started missing some of the, uh, call times, call times. I think he, he, there was something here where he missed like a hundred days or something like that. You can't. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. He was eventually suspended for a time after missing nearly a hundred days of shooting. Okay. So he's, he's getting really involved in drinking and drug use. Um, he was apparently very cagey about his sexuality in interviews. He never really talked about it. Um, according to uh, something that I read on and a sort of gay news site, he was open amongst his friends that he was gay. Um, but he his life starts to go downhill. Um, there is a point where he is... Living in Milan, he was trying to start some school. He was arrested for stealing a bottle of wine from a supermarket to attack some men who were harassing him. And there were reports that he slept on park benches. Um, at, at, in 2002, this camera crew from E! Entertainment Television caught up with him. And he was posting flyers for a male stripper review. He was headlining under the name Leroy Johnson. And it's a very disturbing interview. I've never actually seen it. Um, but he's very like gaunt. This says he's a gaunt and unfocused and almost unrecognizable. Um, so he was really going downhill and he had a lot of, a lot of emotional problems. He was very, very close to Debbie Allen, who was sort of an older sister character her, to him. Debbie Allen, if you don't know, um, was a dancer and very famously, uh, she was like a, big part of the early 80s because she starred in the television show fame where she had the famous line here's where you start paying in sweat um and she's also the sister of felicia rashad who is the the cosby show mom the cosby show mom um but anyway uh can i say something yeah i just want to tell you one quick story yep um so apparently they were performing on stage one time and Jean, An- Jean Ray grabbed her ass while she was singing. And afterwards she scolded him and he was so hurt that he destroyed a dressing room, which is actually almost a parallel of something that he does in the movies, uh, in the movie where he goes and destroys a library by smashing it up with a the glass up with a chair when it's discovered that he can't read. So... He is, and then we can we can maybe move on to uh, to um, Irene Cara. Um, he is, you know, he look. People have uh, difficult lives. It doesn't matter that they're you know in show business. Like every, anybody can have a difficult life, but he is sort of you know he is the cautionary tale. He's like you you get a little off of the right path. And look, if people think show business is, and I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't know, it it's a grind. And you got to show up and you've got to be, you've got to bring your A game every time. And they have people fuck up sometimes, but you're never going to, you're never going to be able to last if this is, if this is, if this is how, how you think that you can continue to work what you had. And it's sad because he had a lot. Um, and in that, in the, in the movie when he goes up to uh, the Anne Mira character and he says, have you heard of Alvin Ailey? 
which is, you know, of course, a big dance company. And, you know, maybe, maybe that could have been his future. But, okay. Tell me well, you know, so again, like, like this is a movie that, that kind of captures some of the joys, but many of the pitfalls of fame and the characters, the, the actors in it themselves end up living that life. And yet again, this movie becomes the blueprint for, I'm going to live forever. Remember my name. I want to be famous. Everybody wants to be famous. Fame, 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 fame. We'll get you what you want. And actually the story of the movie and the characters is that the opposite happens. Very quickly, did you know... Um, did you recognize any famous people in the backgrounds or cameos of this movie? I because did. none of the actors go on to great fame. But there are two people that did find celebrity, but Tell they're me. not featured. Tell me. Meg Tilly is one of oh. the dancers, oh. one of the ballerinas. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And do you remember one of the kids who comes on and and auditions for a drama role and he's got a jester hat on and he's talking to like a, a jester, like another puppet on the stick. I think he's doing some sort of Shakespeare. Yes. Is that, um, who was it? I, uh, Isaac Jason. Mizrahi. Oh my God. Oh yes. my God. <laughs> wow. I thought I had, I noticed a uh, Jason, what's his name? He's pretty famous now. Tall. He was in the movie with the David Foster Wallace movie, Jason. Jesse. Oh, Jason uh, Siegel. I thought I, I think maybe I spotted him. Jason Siegel would have been too young for yeah, that. Yeah, would have been too young. So um, this was filmed with several performing arts, high school, the performing arts, which is now called LaGuardia, um, students. And Isaac Mizrahi was one of the students. Wow. He was 18 at the time. And I was watching it and I was like, that guy's really familiar. Why do I know that guy? Right. <laughs> um, do you want to hear some of the people that tried out and didn't make it, weren't cast? Sure. Quickly. Yes. <laughs> Madonna. Well. Tom Cruise and Patrick Swayze all auditioned for this movie and none of them made it. I'm shocked about Patrick Swayze because he is a fireball, a total right. fireball. Wow. Interesting. Right. Um, so, okay. So Irene Cara was why we started this. Right. right. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting stories about her, you know, she was a child actress. She was from the South Bronx and she was like a Little Miss America pa uh, pageant contestant when she was three years old. And we've got oh. a, uh, one of our listeners um, sent me a video on Twitter of her on a show called, I think it's called The Original Amateur Hour. And she's singing at like the age of five or six next to like a Geritol sign. It's so like... <laughs> So sixties, and she is a spitfire. Yeah, she's just you. Just know you just get. I remember going to theater camp, and there was this one girl. We were all like doing our auditions, and everyone's like you know thirteen and pimply and awful, and and there was this one girl, Dawn, and she was just she was on fire. She was on fire, and she got the lead roles, and she should have gotten the lead roles because she just yeah. she had it. So okay, so Irene, um, so she uh. Was cast in this film based on a uh, movie that she'd done called Sparkle. Um, and she really owns the character. Now, I'm going to tell you, I actually thought she was a little bit of a wooden actress. I think she, I think she, um, 
She nails the most important scenes and the performances, as you say, are incandescent. I found her to be a not great actress. I thought she was a little wooden. I think I I would agree with that. Um, But she's so compelling to look at. I mean, everything, her body, the way she moves, her hair, her bangs. I was like, look at those bangs. She just she was I, I was completely captivated. Oh, you know what else kind of tractor beamed me? I had a lot of thoughts about leotards and nipples. Yes, there were some absolutely fabulous, tight little leotards on tight little dancer bodies and no bras. And it was kind of a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing. Wow. Let's just. just, just, I sing the body electric. Oh, Um, man. Yeah. So, um, the real breakout of this film, the real breakout star of this film, by the way, leg warmers. You know, I don't think I've ever worn a pair of leg warmers. Oh, girl, I did. I didn't. No. I didn't. Well, you don't need to. They're a completely unnecessary uh, accessory, but they look, if you have long, thin legs, they look so cool. They're like a, a giant bracelet for your legs. Anyway, um, uh, Irene Cara. So she's in this movie. She writes the song for What a Feeling in 1983 uh, with Georgia Maroder, um, co-wrote that song, who was a Donna Summer um, mm-hmm. uh, collaborator. Anyway, she wins the Oscar for both oh. Fame and wow. What a Feeling. So she wins wow. the Oscar twice. By the way, she was the first artist to have two songs nominated for Best Song um, for uh, best song, not best song from a movie, because out here on my own was also nominated. Okay, which is a beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Okay, and in 1985, she sues the record company. She okay. sues the label <clears throat> for not paying her royalties from that song. She filed a 10 million dollar breach of contract suit, and. She eventually, in 1993, I mean, this dragged out, she gets a $1.5 million settlement. But according to her, this basically blacklisted her. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. So that's, this is why there's... So that's the story of where she goes. Now, I also would say she might have had some other problems. And I, I have to say, I think she's not a great actress. I think she's a great singer. And a great songwriter, if she wrote the songs, right? So she co-wrote them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she says that, like, around this time, that 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 the label started putting out all these these stories about how she was a diva and she had cocaine problems. Now she did do cocaine, and I don't know. Like, I don't know the truth of any of this. I can tell you that labels don't take kindly to ten million dollar breach of contract suits, but I don't know the truth of it. So through the 90s, mostly she's touring in the UK. Because one of the things I learned in my research was while the television show fame was a minor hit in the in the US, it was a huge hit in Britain. Because of Alan Parker? Because Alan Parker's British. No, because Alan Parker had nothing to do with the television show. Okay. The television show he called an abomination. But okay. it it caught on in Britain. I don't know why. It's because Britain, it's because like the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders are huge in Britain. Like they just love American things, deeply American things. And they're a repressed culture. So you can imagine how they feel when they see a bunch of people dancing on cars. They're like, who are these, these, these foreign, you know, who are these aliens? These Americans, they're dancing, they're singing. So, 
So fame, and, and if you look up kind of like archival stories about fame, they're done in Britain. BBC has an oral history of fame. There was a documentary done in Britain about the people behind the story. So anyway, I just thought that was really interesting that Britain embraces this. I did not know that. And she goes and tours around Europe. Um, and then in 1999, she puts together a band called Hot Caramel. She tries to have a comeback. It doesn't work. Um, she had a brief marriage, maybe like a five-year marriage to somebody. And, you know, uh, at one point she's being interviewed and she has two cats and she lives alone. So I relate to that. Um, so that's, and she had a podcast that I didn't get a chance to listen to. It's called The Backstory with Irene Cara. Huh. Um, I'll look that up. So, yeah. So that's what happens to her. And, um, you know, but a lot of people cite her as a huge influence. Mariah Carey, um, said that fame was, she was complete, like you and like me. She was completely obsessed with it as a kid. She sang out here on my own at some sort of talent show and won. Um, you know, this, this movie is a huge influence on so many people. Um, by the way, did you know that I was so obsessed with the television show Fame that in my second grade year, I came to school and I told everybody at school that I had been accepted to the New York School for the Performing Arts and I would be leaving in five years or whatever amount of years high school was. You, do you know what's interesting? I, I, I've learned as I've gotten older that we all at around, I don't know, age 10, we tell these just incredibly grandiose lies. Um, I, I think I've said on this at one point, I told people the Osmonds were my cousins. Why? Why this would be? And then uh, what was it? I think, oh, Matt Welch was telling people about his aunt Raquel. <laughs> it's just like, you just do it. And then, but you know, you do it when you're 10 and then everybody, you don't realize everybody else is doing it too. And then you forget about it because it's, you know, it's not true, but you're testing the bounds of your power. You're testing the lines of reality and you, what you can get away with. I have heard that smart kids are the ones who lie. And that makes sense to me. Not every kid to... lies. My mom will tell you it never occurred to her to lie. I'm not saying she wasn't smart. She was just that good. Well, I, I also, it's just you You want to be special, and you don't think that you're special enough just as you are, which is true. You're probably not. So, you know, you, right. it's going to make you a little more shiny, right? So, And the fight for specialness and the sort of, like, constant chase for crowd adulation, I mean, like, so much of it gets inflamed by this movie fame, which becomes this television show, which becomes this mantra, um, I'm going to live forever. And again, if you go back to the source material, it is a dark and beautiful portrait of the mixed bargain of pursuing this kind of life. So that is that's beautiful. my report on fame. That, that is beautifully put. Um, I When we were talking about what we were going to talk about, I, I wrote down a little note called the graspers um, because, you know, they're grasping for fame. And we this week saw some different sort of grasping. I'm going to just take the floor for a second. Um, you know, a lot of people here know that I've done a lot of reporting on 
on Portland, uh, Oregon, uh, for several years now. And one thing I've tried to do is I've really tried to speak with people on a lot of sides of issues, including the activists who very famously will not speak to you, you know, if it's Black Blocker, Antifa, in air quotes, because it gets so confusing what's on the ground. There's so many people, they're all like kind of LARPing live action role playing, or they're in black and you can't see them and they don't want to talk. Like that is the thing, like no talking, no cameras, no interviews, not going to tell anybody anything. So it gets a little hard. And then when they complain that they're not being represented, it's like, well, dude, I've asked you to talk to me. So I had something happen yesterday, which I actually started writing a post about it today. And for some reason, Substack like ate my post. Maybe it was that I'm not supposed to post about it. I'm going to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So there was someone that was running for um, Portland City Council named Renee Gonzalez. This was uh, earlier in the month. And he's kind of a moderate. And as a lot of people know, Portland, Oregon has been incredibly... um, very, 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 very to the left. There's been a lot of issues and troubles, and now it's kind of the pendulum is swinging. And this guy was running. And while he was running, apparently someone posted a little picture, a little drawing of like of uh, some black block kids like kind of hiding behind an umbrella, which is what they do. They hide their identities. They hide you from the camera behind these umbrellas. And in a little thing, they said, Renee Gonzalez's home address is, right? Mm-hmm. Someone sent this to me saying, will you report this? It, it had been taken down, but they felt maybe as a journalist who writes about Portland, I should report it. And I, that's Have not- Have you told I, us who Renee Gonzalez is and I, I did. It. Renee Gonzalez is was running for city council. In, Sorry. And he's the moderate running for city council in Portland. Anyway, I, that's not my, that's not what I do. I don't, I don't report things to Twitter. But in any case, I did have it. And so I, I, I wrote, to the person because I had that person's Twitter handle and I'm not going to say it and please don't go look it up if that was be something you would do um, saying, did you post this? Because I'm, I, I'm want to um, maybe include it in a future bit of writing. So this is what I got back from this person. Um, This person wrote back to me, hi, thank you for reaching and asking instead of just using the image. Respectfully, I'm going to ask that you not include it in your work. Even without the Twitter handle, I feel that it is against my best interest that this image is shared publicly. In fact, that tweet was taken down prior to you messaging me. Thank you for understanding. So I thought that was somewhat respectful. But Mm -hmm. I also thought it was important to, in terms of my work and just in general, to understand um, why someone would think this was a good idea to publish someone's home address. And let me just let me just add that when Renee Gonzalez did win, there was a picture published right after his win of himself, of him holding his crying wife because they had just gotten threats to their physical safety to themselves and their mm-hmm. children. So I made a little tiny kind of very respectful. I mean, I'll even include it. I don't know. in the notes saying, Hey, um, hi, you know, um, thank you for responding. I wouldn't, don't worry. I wouldn't put your handle, but I would really like to talk to you, um, about why you thought this was a good idea, you know, because, you know, you post this and you're, you're doing it. I don't know why you're doing it, but once you've posted someone's home address, that, that horse is out of the barn. Like what happens at that point is not up to you. You might say, well, I was just doing it for information or, oh, I don't know. I didn't really think it was anything. But you're posting it with pictures of people in black block and you're posting dress. Something may happen and it may not be good. And I was not being aggressive with with this person. I just thought I would like to talk to you about this. And then this person just blocked me. Just blocked. So block. Just blocked. Just blocked. No, no interest. No interest at all. You don't exist. You don't exist. Delete. So, so my my point about this being grasping is that 
this person and people like that who grasp anonymously for some sort of identity or they want other people to be in the in the hot seat or whatever it is and they do it anonymously they do not stand they do not have the courage of their convictions and that just pisses me off from morning until night dude you want to come at me come at me with your face okay to 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 put someone's home address out there that this person and his children may want because you might get a crazy person right that thinks this is a good idea and you had part something to do with it and when someone asks you quite respectfully as i did like let's talk about this and you're like no i'm not going to this is cowardice this is grasping for what is this grasping for sarah what 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 does this what does this provide this person a moment where his crew thought, yeah, cool. Now I know where to go. Like, what is that? Is that? It's got to be some sort of self-justify. Like there, there is a sense that I'm the good guy, right? Well, I, I mean, if you consider yourself to be the good guy, I would be, I, and I'm serious. My, my offer has always stood to talk to people to explain to me why they are the good guy. Nancy, you're missing the point that if he tried to explain it to you, the whole rationale would fall apart like wet tissue paper. There is, he can, they can't reflect on this. They can't explain this because the lie of it would be revealed. Well, I find that to be cowardly. That's what I find. It's a weird combination of bullying and cowardice. And, you know, maybe all bullies are not all bullies, but bullies are by nature cowardly. But um, the failure to engage, I mean, I just have no respect for it. I don't have much respect for this at all. I don't know this person, but this doesn't. It's just not how I would go around doing business. You know, it is a weird thing to reflect on for a second. How scary it is to have somebody's home address leaked. And then you think there used to be this giant book that came to everybody's house and had everybody in the friggin' oh, city's address. Oh, I know. I know. It's so <laughs> weird to me. It's like they released his address. It's like I used to get that every year. And, uh, you know, like it's it's just it's just a weird people, thing. But it is threatening. Mean- it is. It's odd. You know, that's a that's a change. But it is threatening because it's it's it comes with the menace of do something. Show up in real life. So that, sorry, you know, and, and it's have the courage of your convictions. If you say, I think it is an, I think it is an awesome idea to, let's just take this as an example, to publish this person's home address because I disagree with them politically. I am to the left or I'm to the right or whatever. And because of that, I think it is a good idea, a solid idea, a politically correct idea for my crew to know where this person lives for whatever reason in the future. We want to show up at his house. You know, someone a couple of years ago was elected that they didn't like. And 27 nights or something like that, they showed up at his house and surrounded his house in the night, shining flashlights. Like, you know, this is how they think that they're going to get someplace politically. I challenge, I keep challenging people. Like, please well, come and bring me, please come and bring me the positive effects these particular campaigns have had, for instance, on the city of Portland. Please bring it. I, the, I generous, the generous interpretation of this person is that this person took the thing down. They don't want to discuss it. 
And also they don't trust you because you have, you know, you're saying you're a neutral party and they're looking at the stuff that you write and saying this, this person is well, not neutral. Okay, that's that's the generous interpretation. That's fine. But I also would like to just point out that this person is like, I just don't think it would be good for me. That this yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I know. It's so, weird. So you think... It's not good for you to have all these people <laughs> I know, right? on your virtual doorstep, right? To your probably <laughs> fake Twitter handle. But it's cool to show up in real life. I mean, this is just such utter cowardice. I can't, I can't stand it. But the reason we've we got, got something else to talk about before we are out of time. Oh, I wanted to talk about that Juno Diaz story. Yeah, we're about to, we're going to bump up onto our time too. Well, we'll talk about, so yeah, so uh, Ben Smith over at Semaphore uh, wrote a piece that published yesterday about Juno Diaz, who is a novelist who I think in 2018 was accused of um, kissing someone. um, Multiple allegations of vague, of vagary. One of them is forcibly kissing. One of them is verbal sexual assault, a phrase I had never seen before. I somehow missed this when it first came out. Um, And, And, you know, Honestly, it's it's he was accused of general assholery is what he was accused of, but it was reframed as sort of like sexual assault. Well, he he basically in 2018 was put on the ice floe and pushed out into uh, into the waters to live and to die there out of everybody's vicinity. Right. This and is, if this we, and is, can we pause for a second and just say that Juno Diaz had won the Pulitzer prize for one of his novels, the brief life of what is it? The brief. Oscar Lau? No, it's Oscar. Wow. But is it, is it the brief adventures? What the hell is that? I think it's life. The brief life of Oscar. It's one of those long titles that I'm like, I get lost in it. Anyway, Oscar. Wow. Is the, is the, uh, name there. And he was um, a teacher at MIT, actually still is. But he was a big deal. He was a really big deal. He was one of the kind of most coveted literary wonderkins of the last of that decade. Right. He also had published an essay, I think, the year before in The New Yorker, was it? About how he had been raped as a child. It wasn't a year before. It It was like quite like recently, like okay. before these allegations, he wrote a story. You know, his characters are known for being kind of, you know, domineering assholes. And he wrote a story that was a, I thought just, I mean, I was really knocked out by it. I thought it was really good in terms of being well written, but also being very revealing about being raped when he was a child. Now, when I read this, I remember going on Twitter and being like, I was going to post it. And I did like a search first to see what other people were saying. And I was surprised that more people weren't talking about it because it was like, here you have this literary darling and here you have this incredibly, I mean, men don't talk about rape. They don't. No, no, and this no. was a really, I mean, to my mind, at a time when women have been talking so much about this, this was like really needed, like, like, oh, but we Sarah, needed this story. Oh, but and, Sarah, Sarah, come on now. Again, I went on Twitter and people were dogging on him because they were like, this is his cover for all the crap stuff that he did. Well, if I may, 
I'm just going to say, I did not look at what you saw on Twitter, but I've seen this before. I've seen it's like, oh, right, great. So a man is now trying to get in. Like, we're finally getting our our part on stage and we're talking about the fact that we've been sexually abused. And of course, a man just comes in here and steps on it. And it's like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. You're only you're only the only people that are allowed to have trauma, to have allowed to have experienced, you know, a trauma as a child. Sorry. Oh, really? I didn't realize. Everybody else, dudes, you go sit over there if that happened to you. And the fact of the matter is, men don't talk about it because it's got this sort of like double weird shame that they were not able to protect themselves from another man, right? So they don't. And then someone talks about it and it's like, you go sit down there in the corner. It's our turn. I don't know if that happened with him, but I've seen it happen before, which just I repeatedly see this story. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I repeatedly see this story referred to as like Juno Diaz's cover story that he wrote in New York Magazine, New York, The New Yorker. And it makes me want to cry because I don't know. I don't know Juno Diaz's heart. I don't know what the hell he was doing. I don't know what an asshole he was. All of his characters are assholes. Makes sense that he might be one, Um, you know, but I'll tell you what. A little boy that got raped wasn't making a cover story for his future behavior. And fuck you. Well said. Well, in any case, this story comes out yesterday. I thought it was incredibly well done. I think Ben Smith, I'm going to, Ben, you're doing a great job over at Semaphore, even though I know some of they you. They have loosed him from the New York Times and he has, is he is running. He's on. But, uh, he's on. Even, even though they had some FTX money, so they're going to, he put there was some. Oh, yeah. Money. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but, you know, what it has generated, of course, which will, will be for the end of time. I, I realize this now. We are never, ever, ever going to have any agreement on Me Too. I posted something about this story yesterday and I took a clip from it, which I thought was very poignant. I'll I'll include the tweet. I don't remember exactly what I clipped it from, but several people I don't know came onto my my Twitter page and started having an argument. And one person was very, very like, you know, you really should look at the case. It's like, it's never okay to kiss someone ever in the history of the world and what's wrong with you, you fucking monster. And it's like, Okay, you know what? Can we so, can we talk about the gasp inducing detail yes. of this Please. article, Please. which is the uh one of the the sort of most the precipitating event. The it's precipitating good. event of all this was that he forcibly kissed someone and there was a legitimate discussion as to whether or not that should um constitute sexual assault, right? I mean, I've been forcibly kissed by someone. I actually it was gross and it was weird. Like I actually had a drunk person like take my face and like smash it onto theirs. And it was like, oh, yeah. now I'm not. It was it was really gross. I, I've had that, too. I actually yeah. happened, someone actually super famous. I'm not going to say who it was. I never would. But I was just kind of like, oh, mine's not super famous, but it's Jason Blair, the the famous, the sort of infamous plagiarist. He's the from, one. That yes. <laughs> and I was like, there's something wrong with this dude. All right. So this is how I'm a little bit different from a different generation. When somebody does that, I don't go like, oh, I've been damaged. But my thought was there's something wrong with that guy. That guy's damaged. There's something wrong with that guy. And also, I'm going to tell you, I will. I'm not I don't know this for sure. But in my situation, when it happened, it was a couple of years ago. I'd been out. We were with some people. We were drinking. We were walking. I, I don't know if he was walking me to the train or something like that. And it was a goodbye. And he he was much bigger than I was. And he just kind of put his arms around me and kissed me. But I was like, OK, you know, 
I didn't want that kiss, and I actually was it an open mouth kiss? He tried to make it, and I pushed him. I pushed him away. But the thing is, like, I'm like, okay, Nancy, you've been out for hours drinking with this person, walking around the city. It's two o'clock in the morning. He took his shot, and it was not a shot that he was going to make. But it was like. I, it wasn't like I was like sitting at waiting for a prescription in the drugstore and someone came up to me and like put his face on mine. It was like he took his shot. It was not well, there's a, I wanted, but that, that there's was a dec- so there's a decent argument over whether or not that should constitute to, to, to kind of, you know, um, broach a bodily integrity, et cetera, et cetera. However, what we learn in this story is that the forcible kiss was a kiss on the cheek. A kiss on and the when cheek. I read that, I actually gasped. Well, but but here's the thing: we, I, I I put this in my tweet yesterday. The moment when when we were living through that absolute cultural tidal wave that was Me Too in 2017 and 2018, it brought out a host of good actors and a host of bad actors and a host of people that wanted to that we looked at certain things in their past and for whatever their reasons decided that now was the time to speak up. And, and of course, the argument for that is like, well, other people were too. I, do, I wasn't scared anymore. I was being supported. I felt as though I was being supported. And I, I'm not going to really get into all of that. Sure. I, it, that, that makes sense if big things are happening. A kiss on the cheek at a literary event, when you have gone up and sort of cultivated this this moment, afternoon, whatever, with this person who's quite famous, and he gives you a kiss on the cheek, to then to then take it to the extent that she did, and still standing by it, standing by it. Also, I would just like to kind of segue a little bit. We have a we have our Me Too Hall monitor that I've talked about a billion times, Felicia Sonmez, who I where is she now? She's not at the Washington Post. She got fired, um, and whose origin story for herself as a as a as a, a, a survivor of, of sexual abuse I have written about deeply and have deep questions about. Um, but she had a very 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 long and and you know breast renting thread yesterday about this, including some of the language of some of the people and their stories. Sarah, I I was like it was so. How do I say this? It was so overblown. It was yeah. so crazily overblown. He 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 said something to me and I was nonstop crying. I couldn't stop crying. And then I he pulled me onto his lap, but I stayed there for hours crying onto his shoulder. It's like, what the fuck is happening here? I can't I can't call it up because my phone keeps ringing and it's my mother, so I turned it off. So, you know, one of the um the allegations is that that he verbal that a, is is a verbal sexual assault. And so this is how that I was like, what is that? And then I clicked on that. And this is what the person says. He didn't physically assault me, but shouting the word rape in my face after knowing me for maybe 10 minutes is absolutely verbal sexual assault. I left that dinner halfway through. They were sitting next to each other at dinner. Somebody challenges her on this. They say, uh, yeah, maybe that's verbal assault, but it's not verbal sexual assault. That's uh, that's a little hot, uh, heated. It, it, and she says... I've explained this numerous times. I'm a survivor of every kind of assault, physical, sexual, verbal. I use that term because he was sitting very close to me and shouted the word rape in my face. I felt scared, sick, and paralyzed. If you disagree, I can't help. You know, we're just going to agree to disagree on this thing. And, you know, 
Is this uh, the dinner that in the that's article? That's the dinner party. People are like, nobody else saw this. I mean, if someone, if I'm at a dinner party and someone is shouting rape in my face, I think someone else at the party might notice that. And of course, well, what he says in the article is that nobody else saw it the way that she did. Now, he doesn't tell us how he got that information. And this is okay. something Felicia Sonmez brings up. He's a little bit vague on like, okay, okay. you just okay. undercut somebody's. Uh, you just said nobody else saw it, but you didn't tell us who you spoke to and you didn't tell us how you arrived at that con- conclusion. And also, it's not in any way conclusive that somebody that wasn't involved in a conversation wouldn't experience it the way that the person right. actually I- involved in the conversation was. So Sunmez has some decent that- points, according to me. Um, and most of them are around the fact that he doesn't talk to the people involved. And the reason they don't talk to him is because they don't trust him. And that's a really interesting thing. Um, the idea that he has not earned their trust. And so therefore he is giving us a story that can't help but be biased. Now, meaning Ben Smith, meaning that's the, right. Meaning right. Ben Smith. But this is also convenient. Right. This is convenient. This is convenient. I call you in good faith to talk to you about a story. I do not pre-decide what my story is. I want to ask you what happened. Now you're either A, we're going back to courage, right? You either A, do not have the courage of your convictions or B, it's not the same cultural moment that it was. I mean, that was one of the things I said in my tweet. It's like, yeah, everybody shouted it in 2018. Now it's like four years later, maybe, you know, it's not the same kind of moment. Maybe you don't feel quite so comfortable, but no, you can't go back on it because then you're going to look like a dick, right? So you're just going to like be quiet about it and say, well, you know what? It's not my fault. It's not my fault. I don't trust Ben Smith. Well, why don't you try to trust Ben Smith? Why don't you have something to say? But then they're like, I don't need to, I don't need to defend myself. I'm the victim here. And it's like, okay, you're the victim here, but this guy's been put on an ice flow. So to the point where he hasn't gone to a bookstore in four years, I don't know I don't know him. He could be kind of a horrible guy. I don't know. I do know that the measure of punishment that these people are, are is put on these people will never, ever, ever be enough. I'm telling you, I told my husband when we were in the barrel in Portland, you can take me to Pioneer Square and you can set me on fire and it will not do one fucking tiny bit to satisfy the, the need that people have to see you suffer. We are living through a punishment generation. Maybe it's been since time immemorial. People have absolutely delighted in the in the punishment of others for things that uh, high Salem witch trials, right? We're just going to live this moment and be part of it. Well, I would prefer if they had talked to Ben Smith and said, here's what I'm going to say. Here's what happened. Here are some of the other people at the party and talk to them and confirm what I'm saying. There's a moment where Ben Smith asks Juno Diaz, why don't you fight for yourself? I mean, he references Stephen Elliott, who we've had on our show talking about the lawsuit he had against mm-hmm. Maura Donegan for the shitty media men list. He's asking Juno Diaz about that. And Juno's kind of like, you know what? I just he basically and I wish I could remember the quote. I didn't I didn't pull it to talk, but it's like he's basically like, look, culture has changed and I'm and I'm getting swept to the side because of it. And and they reference Watership Down, which is not a book I actually know. Me neither. <laughs> but okay, <laughs> I thought Juno Diaz was correct. I'm not saying this is what he should do, but I think the pendulum swings and some people get smashed in the face. And you can't predict who it's going to be. And it's not fair. And that's what happens. And it's always happened. Yep. 
Okay, we are going to uh, tie up. But that makes me think of one more thing. It reminds me of something else. Tell me. What is the name of this podcast? This podcast, gentle listeners, is called Smoke Em If You Got Em. And we are now concluding the first part <laughs> of our show. Do I have my, my nice little uh, like radio voice? And actually, this was a long episode, an hour and uh, 10 minutes, um, even with the little flub we had that our lovely, lovely uh, producer will, will, will uh, get that glitch out. But we are now going to go to the second and bonus part of our episode. So, Sarah Hepla, I'll see you in a minute. Smoke em. <laughs> 